Dear Shooter, have you really paid attention to the layout and safety features of the range you use? Is it indoors? Outdoors? What is the attendant use of this range? Are there range officers? And if so, what kind? Are they really range officers? If you are considering building a range, you might want to listen up. You are not safe, and you are not sacred, and you're both hybrid. Built for comfort, not for speed. Yeah, that's uh, actually on my online profile. If you read it. Yeah. Yeah, farmers built, only? Built, yeah, farmers only. Built for comfort, not for speed. More of a Husqvarna than a Harley. I can hide one on your day. On what? I don't want to know. This is your shooter, so it's going to be everything clean. Yeah, no, that's what it is. I'm trying to help the listeners out here. Some of them are going, fucking what? That's a dead <laughs> <life> moment. <laughs> well, when you do a fact, there is no question, though. Oh, nobody right. even, Yeah, but I didn't even get agreement. You guys are all staring at me like I have a third hey. eye. Welcome to the Deer Shooter Podcast. Deer Shooter is brought to you by Wyotech, empowerment through self-reliance, and by Lucid Optics, on target, under budget. Good Thursday morning, and this topic came about because the last couple of days I've been working out at TSI, our home range, and fixing some things and, and basically revamping the entire long-range portion of it, and uh, Wilson, you and I started talking about this. I touched a nerve. Ah, geez. Range design, range setup, range use. I have been traveling in these circles for probably far too long. At the end of the day, I've seen it. I've had to deal with it from both a range design side or a legal side, working as an RTTA with the NRA. Um, We help ranges when they come under fire to mitigate their safety issues and or put things in place, whether it's personnel, schedule, training, whatever, to keep their range safe and useful. The whole idea is to keep it open and operational. Um, I've been on too many ranges, watched too many of the folks that work at the ranges, um, and poor design. This topic is almost endless. So where do you want to start? Well, uh, with the dinosaurs. Okay. Once upon a time. Now, we, we can totally do that. I, those of you that are considering putting in a range, whether it be at home or you're making it a, uh, a career-type enterprise, there are resources out there. Do not try and do this in a vacuum. Um, there's a lot of really, really smart guys out there that just miss some of the engineering controls that are necessary. Um, but how they're run is just as important about how they're built. Right. Well, let's let, let's start with something, and it's it's a common thing that I've seen in a lot of ranges. Uh, the berms are never high enough. Well, and, it, and that's one of those things that you could say, you know, no berm's ever going to be high enough. Um, we mitigate necessity for the height on a berm by putting other engineering controls in place, you know, bluebird baffles. Um, there are shooting tube designs where you, you can't get off or above the, the berm with your firearm. But most folks don't want to put those engineering controls in. Dirt's cheap at the end of the day. Now, big equipment operators, diesel fuel, not so cheap. But knowing how to stack it, where to stack it, and what kind of dirt to use. You just can't throw river rock gravel up and call it a, a good backstop. Right. You've got to have something that's going to capture those projectiles. That's right. So I don't we, know. Ricochet keeps things fun. 
they make a funny noise. Yes, they do. <laughs> but no, it's not fun. I, it, I actually was on a couple different range cases where ricochets were claimed, and I was never able to, in either of the cases, prove that a ricochet was the one that actually left the range. Um, you know, when a bullet hits its first impact, it loses 60% of its energy right out of the gate. It starts to tumble, and its path diminishes in velocity exponentially at that point. While they're, they're not a good thing, you can avoid a ricochet. They're not as dangerous and as horrific as people think they are. No, and that's one of the things, probably the, the most grievous injury that I've seen in a class. And fortunately, it wasn't mine, but there was a T-post that was just under the surface of the berm. Uh, and we had had a bullet ricochet off of that that it peeled the jacket, came back and, and hit the gal that had fired the round uh, just below her eye pro. So caught her in the cheek, uh, small cut, bled a little bit. I mean, nothing serious. Well, and, and that's a pretty extreme case. And, I mean, she should go buy a lottery ticket right now. Right. On the other side of it, having something hard like that inside 18 inches of the the soft outer cover of the backstop uh, that's just irresponsible right so i mean it was this a professional range or was this somebody's backyard deal this was a professional range okay um, and actually it was one of the better ranges that i i teach at um i'm not going to name the range but it it is one of the premier ranges it, it it was just probably one of their staff had laid it in the laid it up against the berm they were fixing something whatever Forgot about it over the winter. It had gotten covered with snow and dirt, and, and nobody saw it. All right. Well, you did bring it to their attention, and they fixed the situation, yes? Yes. Okay, good. Other things, you know, we're talking about berms. There are things to keep off the berms, like your children, your dogs. There are things that do not belong up there. I mean, whether people are shooting or not, nobody belongs on the berm. Unless you're doing structured maintenance, there's no reason for anybody to climb and mess around on the berm. They're there at a very specific angle and at a very specific depth of rock-free free, rock free dirt. Let me say that right. Um, because they're meant to capture a projectile. The more you monkey with them and put footprints in them, and it just degrades the berm overall. So stay off. That's not what they're for. Right. So let's talk about design for a second um right now we're working at tsi we are designing a long range range um where we have metered steel for developing dope on rifles we also have a lot of unknown range random stuff out there um let's talk about what goes into the to figuring out where to place things what gets placed where why you're using these specific targets. So in, in range design overall, 50,000-foot view, everything is purpose-built. You're making a high-power rifle range, um, a precision rifle range. Yes. So I'm assuming you're going to be hanging steel on this range. Yep. How's your backstop? The backstop is a giant mountain. What's it covered in? Dirt. Is it all soft dirt? It, it's mostly bentonite clay. Okay. All right. There's no big river rocks or anything like that mm -hmm. hanging out? No. There's there's some cliff faces, but everything that we're at is below that um, because we wanted to maintain 
enough space above the targets so that if somebody has a flyer that goes high, that we're not risking going over the top. Okay. I mean, as, as long as you've got a good, solid backstop and the the actual, from a shooting position, risk of shooting over it by placing a target too high has been mitigated, then you're probably going to get away with that just fine. Um I wouldn't really call that a mountain either. It's more of a sandstone. It's not mountain like people think mountains with the rocky cliffs. It's it's not that. But I mean, if you were going to run six, eight hundred yards out, you've got to have at least a three to four hundred foot high hill. I mean, just on top- topography alone. Yeah, this is I would call it probably eight hundred. Okay, and so we're you're big. we're our highest targets about three hundred feet below the rim. Now, when you hang your steel, I'm assuming it's going to cascade and ascend up the hillside to get further distance. Yes. Um, you may consider hanging, the, if you're using T-post for hangers, which are you know not great, but they're fine. Um, and the reason I say they're not great is they do have a hard face and they will catch a bullet. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, they're cheap and they're easy to use, and I understand what you're doing. But if you hang your steel at a slight angle... Um, the shooter won't be affected at all, and when they do impact the steel, it's directed back down to Mother Earth. Mm-hmm. So that helps a bunch in the safety side of things. We typically hang our steel uh, at about a 20 to 30 degree forward leaning angle. That'll work just So it, the bullet impacts, and, and the shrapnel is basically sent straight down. Straight down. That'll work just fine. That'll now, work just fine. Now, where's your firing line at? Uh, We have several firing lines. Um, Depending on where you're at on the property, uh, these targets are going to be set from a mile out to a little over 3,000 yards. That that alone mitigates any risk to the shooter. Okay. All right. So, but these firing lines, if you have several firing lines, um, what's the possibility of multiple firing lines being used at the same time? None. Okay, so because that's not the way this is designed, right? You have to mitigate that with schedule, right? My guess is some of these are going to be overlapping into the course of fire. They no, and and the reason is is because the way the range is set up. If if you're doing the shorter range stuff, what we would consider mid range, so we're talking four hundred to a thousand yards, you are shooting a completely different direction than these ELR targets. Okay, you, you in right. fact the opposite direction. Now we talk about ELR targets. ELR targets require a vast distance of nothing in the middle. And if you have anything that you're shooting necessarily over, um, the RO has to be a very, very conscious of what's going on in the middle ground. Because mm-hmm. chances are in, in this environment you'll be shooting over some rancher's road or something. Yep. Okay. So the possibility of somebody driving underneath your course of fire while... It's not necessarily a direct safety risk, but it's a perception of right. a safety risk. Right. So um, you would be good to put a policy in place to run a ceasefire for the a minute, minute, two minutes, whatever it takes for that vehicle to get clear. Mm-hmm. And by clear, I mean 30 degrees off angle from the direct line of fire. Right. Um, Basically, when we set this up, we have a right limit and a left limit on this. So if we perceive anything inside of those limits, we're going to call a ceasefire until it exits that area. Okay. Do you have any engineering controls that are controlling that right or left, or is it all RO-driven? It's it's RO-driven. However, the only time people should be shooting at these targets is when they are in a class. Okay. Fair enough. So being RO-driven, um, you're going to have to divine 
some policies, some procedures. Wouldn't be bad to put a standard operating procedures book together mm-hmm. and train your site specific ROs. That way, there can be no repercussions on the folks that own the property because anybody that's running that line has been trained and they know the safety. Right. I mean, at the end of the day, every shooter is responsible for the round that leaves their rifle. Absolutely. Right? Yes. And the RO is responsible for the activities that happen on his line. That's right. Now you bring up an interesting point. Let's let's talk about ROs for a second. Um, there, you're you're absolutely right when you said earlier to me that there are two types of ROs. <laughs> yes, there, there are exactly the, two. The, the the absentee that's just kind of there because that's he's paid to be, and then you have the Nazi. Well, and I see the two types of ROs, and they're. They're stereotypically either a young kid or a retired gentleman that um, it's just either an hourly wage job or they're retired looking for something to do. Right. Um, A lot of times they're former military. Um, The guys that seek out ROs are typically Marines. And with the personality type that I've just outlaid, there are two types very specifically. Your absentee landlord, the guy that is there wearing the RO vest, but he's really this there to check the trash can and sweep brass. Right. He's not paying attention to what's going on with the line because he's either ill-trained to watch for ne- necessary safety protocol issues or developing safety issues. So he doesn't watch because he doesn't want the conflict with the people on the line. Everybody in an indoor range is wearing ear pro, right? And they have a hard time hearing somebody talking to them. So you have to actually get in somebody's Kool-Aid to have a conversation on an indoor range. Right. Then there's the other guy. We're talking the overbearing, I must tell you how the world works, you will listen to me. And if you do anything wrong, your stance is wrong, you hold the firearm wrong, or his perception of wrong, he's going to get in your Kool-Aid and want to be an instructor and tell you how the world works. And that's the problem. It's wrong based on the way he thinks it should be done. Safety protocol is safety protocol. Right. If you go to a range and you are doing something that is unsafe, everybody that sees this happen should get in your Kool-Aid. Yes. It's not just the RO's job for safety. Everybody on the line should be paying attention to everything that's going on the line best they can. Um, if you're shooting with a buddy, while he's shooting, it's cool to watch his hits on paper. Neat. But you're going to have to be your own little stall RO and be cognizant of what's going on around you. That situational awareness keeps all the red stuff on the inside, right? Mm -hmm. But the two types of ROs, and I don't ever run into anything that's in the middle. They're either a total, I'm going to tell you how the world works, rural Nazi, or they're an absentee landlord. Now, you get the absentee landlord with a packed house. I'll go find another place or some other time to shoot. I don't have to do that right now. Right. And maybe maybe I haven't run into that as much because typically when I'm on a range, I'm I'm teaching a class. I am the RO. Um, they know we're there for a specific purpose, and for the most part, they just leave us alone because we're doing something completely outside of their scope of knowledge. And that's a that's a big difference in the actual situation than a casual Saturday going down to run a few rounds through your pistol. Um, that's a structured environment that has a couple more layers of safety enhancement on it because they're doing very structured tasks. They're not plinking. Right. 
and they're and they're not left to their own devices. They're they are doing what they are being told to do. Well, it's kind of the shooter's responsibility as well to check the rules of that particular range because based on there's some ranges we've had ammo limitations. They don't allow certain guns. They don't allow certain ammos, and there there's reasons for it. But the next range down the road might not have those limitations. So it is your responsibility to read and know the rules of that particular range. Absolutely right. And I know exactly what I, I know exactly what you're talking about. And and a lot of times when you as a shooter, when you show up, you know, it's, well, this is the gun I have, and this is the range I want to shoot on because of whatever reason, because this is my this is the fun range. This is what I'm comfortable with, but. They're going to have ammunition restrictions. They're going to have caliber restrictions because of the steel that they have out there, because of the targets that they have out there. Um, I've been on a lot of ranges where they don't allow magnum calibers because it just destroys the targets. And that stuff's not cheap. No, the, the steel is getting nothing but more expensive. And if you shoot the right stuff, you can still do a lot of proper work on steel, not damage the equipment. Um, full metal jacket, armor-piercing stuff, yeah, cool, your grandpa gave you some, but that's not something you take to the range and burn up that way. No. Tracers, leave those at home. Right. They're neat for Fourth of July if you're around the lake, but other than that, leave those at home. Yep. Well, we're we're talking, like, huge ranges, public or private, whatever, whatever. These are controlled ranges. What if our shooters would like to build something in their backyard to practice, say they live out of town, they have some acreage, what would you say to them? I would say pay attention to what you really want to do on your range. Now, if it's going to be multiple purpose, which most people are going to say, well, I want to shoot my pistol, I want to shoot my rifle, I may shoot my shotgun from time to time. I mean, they're going to shoot what they've got because they have land to go do it on. Cool. But you're still going to need to be aware of your neighbor's. Be aware of infrastructure. And if you need to put engineering and safety controls in place to mitigate the risk of a safety issue and or the perception of a safety issue, and I think perception is probably where most people get in trouble more than an actual safety issue, if you're going to do this on a regular basis, you're going to have to put some effort and some controls into building it so it is specific for what you want to do. Pistol ranges are shorter. They require a little bit higher side berms because you're going to do more than just square box A-frame shooting on that range. You're going to play some games. You just are. It's human nature. If it's a rifle range, your side berms aren't as much as necessary, but your backstop's got to be epic. It's got to be able to capture anything you're going to throw at it. And nothing downrange should be able to be seen that would be a problem because that perception of safety is an issue. Well, that's why here on our property, we have acreage. But no matter where you set a berm, we have horse pastures and neighbors. We have highway. We have our guest house on the other side. Just And there's a dirt road behind us. Uh, that road runs right behind us. There's also, you got to watch those two tracks. I mean, we have a two track behind us that our ditch rider uses. And you got to be aware. You could get away with a range here on the north side of your pasture, but it's going to be a very specific purpose-use range. And it will be, if you were to do it, a very minimal pistol bay 
that you might get some carbine work in for close quarter stuff, but it's not going to reach for very far. And it's going to have to be enclosed, which means your berm should be 12 foot tall on the side and 20 foot tall on the back. Well, and you said in the pasture, so we talked about things walking on the berms, Mm -hmm. you know, goats, alpacas. You'll have to control that with with mitigation and fencing and things like that. You'll have to control it because they will destroy your berms. Well, and I've I've never really felt, I mean, it would be nice to have something, you know, right out my back door for testing purposes. But for the most part, we have ranges within five to ten minutes of us that we can push 2,000 yards. Well, and so it, we're blessed to have property around us that we're surrounded by BLM, mm-hmm. which is acres and acres and thousands of acres of nothing, non-inhabited public land where you can go and police your own trash and shoot safely and, and, and get most work done in the downside is you've got to carry all that accoutrement, your bench, your shooting mat, your target stands with you. And then when you're done, you've got to pick up everything, including your brass and your trash, and take it back with you. So you spend 20 minutes shooting and an hour delivering gear in policing trash. Right. So if, if that floats your boat, then by all means, go do it. But there's a lot of places that you want to just roll up, sign your name, pay a fee, be assigned a bench and go to work. Right. And then when you leave, you sign out and leave. Yeah. You Let go the home. guy that owns and runs the range manage it for you. Right. And there, there's advantages and disadvantages to both. Um, you're absolutely right. To go out where where it's close, yeah, it it's a 10-minute drive, but it's an hour setup. And then it's another hour to clean up and, and leave to shoot, like you said, for 20 minutes. But if I want to go out to the structured range and, and have you know the range manager clean up after me and not have to worry about all that, now I'm driving for an hour both ways. So it, it so we're back to that universal truth of everything's a trade-off. Right. It absolutely is. Um, it, going back a little bit to range design, and I don't mean necessarily the engineering of the range, but setting targets and designing shooting lanes and shooting positions for specific work. So setting targets, the, the fundamental thing you got to remember there is the target, even if it's paper, needs to be nestled as closely as it can to the backstop because the bullet's not stopping when it goes through paper. And if you're not up next to a backstop, like we have a range locally that has a 200-yard bay. Mm-hmm. They have a target at 25 yards, 50 yards, 100 yards, 150 yards, and then a target at the back wall at 200. And they're paper target butts. These are not steel. So your, your, your bullet is not impacting and staying there. It is going through the paper, finding its way to the dirt, and skipping, catching angle, and leaving the range. Now, if they would put a backstop behind each of those paper target areas, it would catch and stay right there. Wait. I know, I know the one you're talking about, and they have since done that. That's good. They have the, they have a berm behind every. In target. my report to the NRA, when I evaluated that range, that was the one thing that was the safety issue. Right. Right. Outside that, there was nobody on the range watching 
the people shoot. Mm-hmm. So there was no RO. And you find holes in the ceiling of the canopy. You find holes 180 degrees from the, fi- from the firing line in the bathroom. Um, can't imagine the situation where that was kosher to do. I mean, you're at the firing line. You're at the shooting range. Hey, let's turn 180 degrees around and let's shoot the bathroom. Right. Um, was there somebody in there you thought it would be funny? I mean, the bathroom's the size of a, I mean, it's a building, for Christ's sake. You weren't doing any target work. Well, and Brandy, you and I saw this. We were we were at a range, indoor range, and we were doing some class work and and working with students. and And looking on the sidewalls of this range, there were bullets embedded in the sidewalls. Indoor ranges are notorious for having negligent discharges. Um, the pistol doubled or they held it wrong and they didn't realize it was going to go off because their booker hook was on the bang switch. Um, indoor ranges have holes in the walls and the ceilings and the skips in the floor. I mean, the muzzle control at an indoor range is shockingly poor. Right. And if that absentee landlord RO is there, that stuff's going to ensue. And, I, and I've seen it. A lot of the indoor ranges that I've been to, uh, the ROs that are out there are wearing body armor. And from what I've seen, for good reason, you're you're absolutely right. Some of the, like, the absolute newbie don't have a clue. They're there. Well, and I can't even claim the absolute newbie. I have seen several videos online um, where the instructor torched one off when he was showing how to hold the pistol. Yes. And... Obviously, that round went directly through the ceiling. Pro tip, guys. Most indoor ranges are not armoring their ceiling. That bullet left the building. Yeah. And now you've just endangered everybody outside that building that didn't sign a liability waiver. That's right. So, coming back to this, and I'm, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to nail you down on this. <laughs> Target placement on your range We've talked about the safety aspect of it, and, and we we got to capture that projectile. We've got to make it safe. But when you determine where you're going to place that target for the specific use, how do you make that determination? Well, it, for, for your precision rifle range, for example, um, if you have the space, I would set up two courses of fire from any given firing line. One is going to be a target butt that has something I can zero in on and refine the optic to my ballistics, right? Um, two is going to be a set of metered pieces of target, or you know, preferably steel in this situation, that are at exact known distances, and you hang the exact right size targets on those. So when you're actually running your dope chart, you can refine it and see exactly what is working, what um, your ballistic calculator is getting wrong, what bad data you may have fed it. Mm-hmm. Um, those are the two main firing lines at a rifle range I look for. Um, if it's a luxury range, there's going to be some unknown distances that are going to be random because those will just mess with your head. Right. Um, I like to see a bench environment. I like to see a flat place where someone could go prone and work laying down. I like to see a sturdy barricade where you have to work unconventional positions and deal with not being steady. It just makes you a better shooter. 
and we are we're installing every one of those things that you just talked about um now everything that we're putting up all of our steel targets that we're putting up they are 3 8 ar 500 steel awesome we're going to be able to shoot magnum calibers not a problem um we're going to have metered steel from 200 to 1,000 yards so that you can check dope. Uh, depending on your firing position, because we're, we're going to set up probably 9 to 10 different positions. Um, all of them will be mapped out. And when we're running these classes, you know, we've, we've set these shooting positions so that we tend to run concurrent classes where... I might be running a pistol class or a carbine class. Okay, any of these positions you are going to be able to use without affecting those two shooting positions, you know, the, the carbine or the pistol. So position. you don't have to mitigate classes by schedule. You can have congruent timelines. You, you can as long as they're not two long-range classes. Sure. That um, makes sense. Because, you're, you know, you're using those long-range facilities and, and, and those... Uh, Structures. Okay, sure. <laughs> I mean, now that makes yeah, sense. You know, you, you, You've got specific engineering controls in for a certain distance limit, and then you'll change position to get there. And then we will be building some barricades, some shooting positions. We discussed uh, a a boat platform. I hate the boat. I love the boat. I mean, I understand what it's doing for your shooter mechanics, but... Having shot from one and being dismally horrible at it, I hate the boat. I want to set the boat and put about a 550, 600 yard, know your limits target for the boat. How big's a piece of steel? It'll probably start at six and go down to two. I hate the boat. <laughs> what I'm excited for this year and, and what really brought this about, so last year... We had a 300 wind mag come to our long-range class. At the time, the furthest we could get was 1,300 yards on the range. So while it tested the mechanics and the, the limits of the shooter in, in applying his trade, we really never got the full, what's this gun capable of? Most ranges don't. I mean, you start looking at the, the, the list of, let's just say, a 1,000-yard structured ranges in the country. It's pretty small. It is. You start looking at ranges that have targets that are out past that, and it's exponentially smaller than that. Uh, you're, you're probably counting on two hands. Right. And then you hit the, the places where you can shoot 2,000 yards at a structured target. Mm -hmm. um, you can count it on one hand. Right. Now, places you can shoot 3,000 yards... I don't know of them as a standard range. I mean, there's one at the Whittington Center in Raton, New Mexico. Right. And this might be something for your listeners to chime in. If they know of a place in the country where you can do that, I'd love to hear about it. Um, it's just that level of land mass to be able to shoot on um, safely, controlled, without mitigation of perception, it's really hard to find. That's a long stretch. It, it's huge. And... I'm going to throw out the gauntlet here. At, at the longest, uh, at the furthest shooting position, the, our longest piece of steel, uh, I've, I've mapped this out. We've, we've lasered it out. It's about 3,200 yards if you push the extreme limits. How big is that steel? 
It will be 28-inch square. So it's less than a minute. Yes. It is tiny. That's tiny. Now I'm going to throw down the gauntlet. Anyone that shows up to one of our classes and hits that piece of steel, I am going to pay for their admission to the Military Vehicle Museum in Dubois. That's a pretty good deal. Unless they're military. I was like, unless previous, he's a vet. Because then they get in free. Well, that's, you know, saves me. Yeah, but you're rolling what? the dice there. I see what you're doing. <laughs> no, no, I get it. And it, it, make no mistake about it, guys. That that Anything over 3,000 yards is no joke. You've got so much environmental stuff that has to play there. I mean, elevation is the easy part. Well, anything past, you know, 1,500 is starting to get tough. Oh. Especially when you're talking less than a minute. And bullets do funny things when they destabilize. Well, and, and where we've got the steel, we found a, a natural uh, saddle in, in this mountainside that, where we placed all this stuff. And it, it, the cool thing about it is it's a natural bullet trap. Like I said, it's, it's bentonite clay. Um, it's on about a 60-degree angle. Uh, so nothing's coming off of this thing. But what also happens is because there are cliff faces that wrap around this, the wind is going to do some really weird stuff inside of that. And there's no way to hang a relevant wind flag for a projectile making that level of travel of arc. No. You're probably talking 10 to 12 different wind profiles by the time you reach the target. But you're launching a projectile up into the 200-story building line. Yes. That wind, you can't put a, a flag on it. No. I mean, the best thing you could do is re- you know, release a helium balloon and watch it dance. I mean, <laughs> Start throwing up highballs. That, that's going to be crazy. I'm, I'm kind of excited to come play on it a little bit. I just got to evaluate my gear and make sure I've still got something that will reach. I, I, I know I don't own anything that will reach that. You're a 300 PRC. You'll get there. It, it'll get there. It's going to be out of gas. Oh, it's totally out of gas, but it'll get there. I mean, I'm I'm comfortable at the 2022. I'm I'm comfortable with that. I think the longest I've had that thing out is 2050. Yeah, it's still pretty far. You're going to go from my firearm where you go, oh my god, that's so expensive. Every time you pull the trigger, to stop pulling that trigger, you're killing me. That's going to be the exact words that come out of his mouth because I mean, this the 6.5 PRC is what five six bucks around right now. Yeah. So what is like the three seven fives or the whatever that's going to make it to the three thousand oh, yards? You're the thirty three XC. You're eight ten twelve dollars around. Last yeah. time I priced Shytac rounds for three seven five, they were fourteen fifty around. Right. And that, if you and if you're getting into the intervention where you're the what is that the four oh six four oh eight? They're seventeen around. So I, around this this is not a game you just come and play at unless you got a big pocket. All right. To, to be fair about that though, I and and this is something that just irritates me because I I have guys that come to class. I had a guy come to class last year with a stock Bagheera in six five Creedmoor, and he just crushed it. You don't have to spend a ton of money. You don't have to mortgage the house. To get into this now, yes, the where the expense is is the ammunition. Yeah, but okay. Let, let's be fair with that statement. And I agree with you. You don't have to spend the, the tons of money on gear to be good. But I will say that he's shot a six five Creedmoor 
on a range set that was inside 1,600 yards. Yes. He was totally capable with the cartridge he had to hit and know that he hit. He was. Now, we're talking about doubling that distance. Okay, doubling that distance, yes, you're going to have to spend a little bit of money. Weight of bullet's going to play. Velocity's going to play. Um, and you don't find Mossberg's chambered in 375 Shintac. Ch- no, you, you, you don't. You just don't. So you're, you're looking at a more expensive rig to play that game well. You are, but, but what I'm getting at is you don't have to have the $12,000 custom rifle. Oh, I you agree can, with that. You can get into this for four or $5,000 for your base gear. Yeah, I think you could. Um, I, I see guys on the range. I mean, they come out there. I had a guy. I had a guy last year that showed up, and he was running. It was probably a seven thousand dollar rig. Um, did well with it. My competition gun, my my ELR competition, my my three hundred PRC as it sits is a nine thousand dollar gun. Well, fair enough, but but we're you, talking about ranges, and and yeah, you need the gear that that it's capable of reaching what you're doing on a safe manner um, to go out and, and try and take that 243 and, and hit the 3,000 mo- 3, yard target um, you might luck into it but it's not going to be on purpose. Well no. and if you're getting into that game and you're buying the equipment back to you know building your home range or whatever what kind of steel do you need for a 375 Shytac versus your 65 Creedmoor? I mean, there's there's a difference. Absolutely right. And then the steel requirements need to be better in the closer range because that's where the impact and the uh, the damage is done. Right. Um, that bigger caliber is just really getting you out of what we would consider the mid range, solidly into the long range category with enough gas to still be performing. Right. Um, and that's and when that's it hits why we steel at 3,000. It is 44 mag, point blank. I mean, it's really not acting like a rifle cartridge at that distance. And that and that's something that we took into account when we when we were building all this stuff. The the closer the distance, the thicker the steel that we used. Um, as we started going out, I think I think one of our one of our targets is a it's like 20 inch target, square target. It's quarter inch AR 500. But we've got that thing placed at 1,600 yards. It'll be just fine. Right. Because by the time you get there with most of the calibers we're going to be using, it it doesn't have enough on it to puncture that steel and damage it. So the range design. When, when you're setting this up, um, what kind of controls and information are you giving the operator? Um, in a long-range shot, <laughs> it's nice to see some environmentals and some wind, but... For what you're doing, and I'm assuming you're shooting up to get this a little bit, um, you're not going to get much in the way of environmentals. No. Um, I mean, how are you going to read wind on this situation? You've got you've got some trees in between you and the target that you can watch, but that's not giving you the environmentals where your flight path is. I, I think the trees are so far below where your flight path's going to be that they're not relevant. Agreed. But that's the game. That's, that's so, the game these guys want to play. All right, so there's no way to give a win call effectively. Yeah, yeah, you do it. You, you pick up the gravel, and you toss it in the air. <laughs> Our good friend Derek did that, and I, I'm not sure if he was joking, but he sure should have been. Um, yeah, it, wind at that distance is, is a very interesting animal because 
you get one metrics of feedback, and that's going to be your terminal hit. Right. Um, if you can get another shot off relatively quickly, the hope is that the wind hasn't changed much. Define quickly, though, because when we talk about follow-up shots inside of a 1,000 yards, we give two seconds for a follow-up shot before well, environmentals have changed. Triple well, the distance, triple the time. Right. You're talking about six, seven, eight-second flight paths. Yeah. The, the wind has changed three times by the time the bullet's gotten there. Agreed. So it's going to be a challenge regardless. So if you guys are going to do this, if you're, if you're looking to set up your own range or if you're going to a public range, what are some basic things to look for? You know, we talked about berm height, uh, composition. We've talked about, you know, target composition, what, what we need to look for there. We've talked about, you know, ROs. What other things should we be looking for? Possibly that uh, other firing lines aren't in front of yours, like rifle behind or pistol bay in front of the rifle shooters. We've seen that. So design layout, it's got to be safe first off. Second off, there's a, there's a handful of things that I kind of equate all on the same level if you're walking onto a range for the first time. Um, overall perception of how well-maintained that range is, Right. If if it looks like a hobo shack, it's maybe run like a hobo shack, so you got to be careful. Right. Um, then look at the, the behavior and stances of the ROs because you're going to engage with an RO at some point during your trip. Um, it helps you determine how that conversation is going to go, right? And, and thirdly, I look around for a couple things like is a med kit prominently hung on the wall? Is there a fire extinguisher nearby where it's easily accessible? Um, how do the, the mechanisms as you enter from an indoor range perspective from the pro shop to, say, the line, um, is it airlocked where you have hearing safety p- protocols put in place as you shut the doors behind you, wait, open the next doors behind you? Because there is definitely a protocol for that because if you open the door, at the same time, someone else opens the other door. That sound travels all the way into the pro shop, and you will get in trouble. Right. So just there's some thought process that goes into that. I also watch for lead mitigation shoe mats. Um, they're the sticky pads that you step onto as you leave the range. Okay. So in a high-use range, there's lead dust in the air, on the ground. Right. There's no reason to take that level of contaminant with you. Now, a hand-washing station shortly after you leave the range is a good idea. Very few ranges do that. A lot of them have a bathroom all the way across the pro shop. Right. And it's a pet peeve of mine, but, you know, lead poisoning is a real thing. So when you're done at a public range like that, go wash your hands. So what you're telling me is that, you know, here in a few more years, I'm going to be mad as a goddamn hatter. Nah, an, you've already eaten lead paint. You're, that's, you know. what I'm, that's what I'm saying. Did you hear the stutter? It started already. <laughs> stutter or slur. They're, you know, fine line. Does he have like a Tourette's moment that you've noticed? Yes. Most of his life. Most of his life. All right. So, yeah, <laughs> it's already started. I've embraced that. It, you just made it part of your personality. Nobody notices anymore. Exactly. <laughs> I think this has been, I think it's been really good because I, I think you're, you're absolutely right. A lot of people want to make that home range, but they don't know where to start. So... Real quick before we close out of here, what are some good resources for people that are looking to build a home range or 
maybe maybe they've noticed some things at, at the the public range that they go and use what are some resources for them if there's problems if there's something that they need to get fixed where do so they go resources for anybody that's looking to develop a range there are several um, probably the top flyer for me mostly because I'm a little bit biased as I'm part of that program that helps ranges get started the range services program through the NRA now the NRA has its problems um, but this is one of those departments that runs a very specific program of range development and safety mitigation for ranges now they wrote the book on range safety, range design, safety mitigation. Um, the NRA became the authority on developing shooting ranges for every possible discipline out there. And the source book, if you happen to see one in a three-ring binder, it's a six-inch three-ring binder. Now they have it digitized, and it's on a PDF. Now you can order the source book online. It's easy to get. You can reach out to range services and ask for an RTTA evaluation of your site. They will find the guy in your area that's a volunteer, and they will send him out. He'll come take a look at your site. He'll give you some guidelines, and he'll write a report that's all professional and, and polished up, and it comes back to you through the eyeballs of the folks at Range Services. So you know that when they write the recommendations of what you know they suggest you do, They've been well thought out and passed through legal. There's going to be a lot of things in there that you didn't think of. So what is a service like that? What would that cost? $250. That's pretty cheap insurance. It's damn cheap. Now, the NSSF also has a similar program that they're starting. And by starting, they've had it for three or four years now that I'm aware of. Um, it's not as well developed. Um, it's not nearly as robust and has the resources behind it as the NRA does. But they do have one, and it's not a bad place to start. Um, I even think USCCA has a range consultant on staff where if you're getting ready to do a indoor range as a business, they have a guy that will help you walk through the steps. And he's more oriented in the um, some engineering side, um, clearing municipal guidelines and goals so you can get it put in, right? Um, the the safety protocols and all that they have a book for, but they basically stole that from the NRA. Right. So at the end of the day, it's all back it's, to the it's NRA the NRA source book, and that's great information. Um, and I think that's where people really need to look at for development of their you know if they're doing something on their property, if they're doing something as a commercial venture. Those are huge, great resources, and and utilize them. So. Ranges are a core thing that we do as shooters. Like, we, we, we have to have ranges, and we have to have safe ranges, and they, they've got to be managed properly in order to maintain safety and, and also help us develop as shooters. So take all these resources, you know, $250 for an RTTA to come out and check out your range, that's nothing compared to the cost of actually building a range. So utilize these resources, and until next week, you guys stay safe out there.